0: Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Pathfinders from RBC Capital Markets, where we'll explore the most exciting new frontiers for companies and investors in biopharma. Uh, I'm Luca ECC, Senior Biotech Analyst at RBC Capital Market, and it is my pleasure to be here with Arjun Goyal. Uh, co-founder and managing director of Vida Venture, one of the most dynamic VC firms in biopharma. In this episode, we will discuss Arjun's journey to uh, founding Vida Venture, uh, his passion for investing in true innovation, and his perspective on the latest trend in VC. Arjun, uh, welcome and thank you for being here with us. Thank you, uh, Luca, and it's great to be here. Before we dive into the specific of VIDA and some of the uh, exciting investments that uh, you have made recently, it would be great if you can give us an overview of your background as well as uh, your journey from academia to your current role at VIDA.
1: Sure. So, my own journey uh, started uh, in Australia um, as a medical student. Uh, I'm uh, first-generation immigrant from a a medical family. So medicine was in the blood, to be honest, and I, after high school, went to uh, the University of Melbourne to do my medical training. That program was unique because it was the only research-orientated medical degree in Australia, and by that I mean uh, every student had to do a year of lab research as part of their undergraduate program. I did that work in the UK at Oxford uh, with a now-famous Adrian Hill, who's uh, developed the COVID-19 vaccine. His lab was pretty unique in that it integrated uh, lab work with clinical research in West Africa. That was a formative experience. So I I came back to my medical studies, uh, very interested in in being a physician scientist, working on clinical research and developing new therapies. That's really been a a guiding light uh, in my career from that stage. I would say, you know, being in the UK and, you know, areas like Oxford and Cambridge, I was exposed to the entrepreneurial climate there. Um, and balancing research with, with startups. I, I did start a company, uh, a biotech company, as a PhD student and uh, raised some seed capital both from Cambridge and, and Oxford. Naively and thought I could be a biotech entrepreneur and, and combine that with my PhD studies. You know, I soon found out that it was impossible. So I dropped out of my PhD, disappointed my parents, disappointed my mentors, and started this journey about 10, 12 years ago into, into biotech. Uh, you know, came over to the U.S., got an MBA at Harvard Business School. I met my partner and co-founder uh, of Vita Ventures, uh, Stefan Vitarovich, but I transitioned into venture uh, and got my first real job uh, in industry uh, as an associate at 5AM Ventures uh, before uh, working with Stefan to put together Vita
0: Ventures. That's terrific. And, uh, you know, uh, very impressive the intersection between uh, research, practicing medicine, as well as the entrepreneurial spirit. You mentioned Vita. Can you maybe talk, you know, high level? What is the uh, big picture mission of the fund here? So, really, you know, there are three
1: things that energize us uh, at Vita. First and foremost, it's, you know, working with entrepreneurs, scientists, and investors to develop the next generation of impactful curative medicines and that's core to our thesis uh, many of us at vita come from backgrounds as physicians or scientists uh, and uh, are passionate about new modalities that are appearing and the ability to offer cures in a subset of diseases so that's first and foremost how we define ourselves the second is you know we like to work with entrepreneurs to put companies together so unlike i would say you know i don't want to use the word traditional but you know, there was an era of venture capital where, you know, VCs were, you know, fairly heavy handed in, in terms of how, to, how they build companies and how they retain control. You know, we want to liberate our entrepreneurs and scientists to develop these companies, uh, be creative about how they put pipelines together, creative about how they access private and public capital. Uh, and we see ourselves really as thought partners, uh, you know, to the entrepreneur and to the scientist. So that's the spirit that we take, uh, you know, to our investing roles at, at, at Vita. The third thing is that we see this as an incredible time in the industry. We see uh, maturation of industry with capital inflows, with innovation that is happening globally and is so rich and bountiful. The industry is maturing from a cottage industry uh, based in Boston and San, San Francisco into a real industry which is global. So it's the globalization of, of not just R and D but how medicines are developed that excites us.
0: That's very helpful. Uh, Arjun, can you walk us through the investment strategy here? And most importantly, like, what's the real secret to kind of find transformative technologies in pockets of science where others only see risk? Like, how how, how do you balance that? How are you thinking about it?
1: That's a question we ask ourselves every day. You know, the, the term that I've used internally is that, you know, risk in biotech is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So where, you know, many people see risk, we see opportunity. The reason why we see opportunity um, is threefold. Firstly, you know, our background is physician scientists. We've published papers. We've interpreted research. We've taken uh, medicines forward through uh, development regulatory processes. We know the rules of the game. That gives us comfort uh, that once we pair with the right team and the right entrepreneur, we can put in research plans to de-risk science. The second thing is that we focus a lot on three or four pockets here at Vita, so certainly on cell and gene therapy as a modality, certainly on oncology and rare diseases, but particularly oncology as a therapeutic uh, area space. Uh, so we know those areas intimately as researchers, as entrepreneurs, and frankly, as investors. The third thing is that we're blessed to work with uh, syndicate partners who are equally, if not more, savvy about these spaces. Uh, so we're always looking at how we can leverage their insights, their talents uh, and, and their capital.
0: Maybe let's dive into uh, some of the specifics here and some of the therapeutic areas that uh, uh, that you have a uh, portfolio companies in. And uh, You mentioned your focus in oncology. When you think about cell therapies in oncology today, what do you think are the current limitations of cell therapies in oncology? And how are some of your portfolio companies addressing some of these limitations today?
1: So you know, I would say that you know there are two fundamental limitations uh, in cell therapy in oncology. Uh, The first is around uh, accessibility and manufacturing. First generation of therapies have been autologous, and that's fine if you're at a comprehensive cancer center or or a top-tier academic medical center. But if you're in you know the middle of America or Canada, those those treatments are a lot more difficult to, to access. So one of the fundamental challenges or opportunities, rather, that we have as investors is this trend from autologous to allergenic therapies that are batch processes or can be stored in a fridge or a refrigerator and given to patients irrespective of their immune status. That's the first. The second is that you know cell therapies have shown tremendous clinical benefit in tumors of the hematological system, so blood cancers, basically. We have you know, dare I say it, cases and and data to suggest that they can almost, you know, potentially be curative in those settings. But if you look at the total uh, opportunity set when it comes to oncology, about 10% of all tumors are are blood-based or liquid tumors. 90% are solid tumors, you know, lung cancer, colon cancer, head and neck cancer, these type of tumors, you know, they've still been insensitive to uh, immunotherapy. So the second opportunity is to figure out how we can use self-therapy and solid tumors. Those are the two key opportunities. The promise is that we can, you know, as Liquid Tumors has shown, is that we can approach treating these patients with curative intent from a physician's perspective, and that's a paradigm shift and game-changing. So if I was to go through our portfolio and think about the companies we've put together to uh, take advantage of those opportunities, I would say the first is a company called Allergene, which is a spin-out of the allogeneic cell therapy assets from Pfizer to go after uh, both liquid and solid tumors uh, with this allogeneic uh, cell line process. That company was spun out from Pfizer about two and a half years ago, taken public about you know 18 months ago, and is now a, a company about $6 billion with two programs about to go into the clinic. Um, it's shown uh, impressive data in its lead program for CD19 and uh, has announced that it will go into the clinic with its PCMA program for myeloma. It also has several solid tumor targets, uh, in particular CD70 for renal cell carcinoma, uh, that it's going to take into the clinic. We really do see that as a vanguard of the next generation of cell therapy treatments in cancer. We have a number of plays now uh, with cell therapy focused on solid tumors. Companies like Neogene and Pat, uh and also A2Bio and fundamentally, you know, the, the focus here is using different types of cell therapy formats. So T cell receptor therapy, tumor uh, TILS uh, or tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy to go after targets that are expressed on the surface of solid tumors at a moment in time and selectively target those tumor antigens with either TCRs. For TILs, I would say that those approaches are still what we would term first generation from our perspective. We're trying to show that we can actually go after these targets selectively, that we can get a strong clinical response that shows proof of concept in the solid tumor setting. There are a number of companies that have already done this uh, or in the process of doing this, like Iovance, which has some good data with TILs in various solid tumor settings. That field is still, I would say, three to five years behind where we are with CAR-T, uh, particularly in allogeneic CAR-T, where we've already shown proof of concept in, uh, in various liquid tumors. But we think there's tremendous opportunity uh, with these new modalities.
0: Very helpful and uh, a great overview of uh, some of your portfolio companies in cell therapies. Pivoting to target therapies, there are some perceptions out there that, you know, maybe old school medicinal chemistry with small molecule is maybe dead. <laughs> Can you talk about that and articulate a little bit about the rationale around your investments in uh, Kinate and chronos?
1: So, what we would say is that uh, we do believe that this is that old school chemistry to targets I wouldn't say it's dead. Um, I would say that was a first generation approach um, where you had non-selective chemistry going after validated targets. The new generation is really you know, leveraging new tools, new insights, uh, many of which are computational, to get to an endpoint where what they're really going after is emerging allele-specific resistant mutations, which are a much smaller uh, patient population, the so-called undruggable targets, so these are targets that, you know, we know to be relevant to uh, to cancer, like P53, KRAS, uh, you know, c-Myc, you know, transcript, various transcription factors. It's just that we've never had the tools um, or the capabilities to go after them, you know, selectively. Now we have that toolkit, whether it's degraders as a chemistry modality, whether it's using various computational techniques, uh, bioinformatics, AI, data sciences whether it's protein motion uh, visualization, we can go after targets that have been difficult to drug to date. And so, you know, the, the tremendous interest you've seen and whether it's our portfolio companies like Peloton going after uh, HIF2-alpha selectively, or Kronos, which is going after various transcription factors, selectively Kinate, which is going after ill-specific resistant mutants. These are problems that we've recognized clinically for years um, that we've never been able to target selectively. And now we can with the, with, with the new toolkit we have in play, uh, as well as the next generation or, or genomic sequencing of tumors that are able to highlight um, these uh, particular genotypes within biopsies that we weren't able to do like 10 years ago, or 15 years ago. Now we're able to pair the right medicine for the right patient, you know, classically what we term precision medicine it's a paradigm shift in the way that cancer is being treated yeah
0: that's uh that's very helpful and uh hopefully we'll open up a new era for uh for medicinal chemistry where uh, we can really drug the undruggable and go after prescription factors and other targets that historically has been challenging pivoting to the oligonucleotide space we have uh, at this point multiple drugs approved uh, by the FDA in the siRNA space. Uh, obviously, you know the technology today is limited to uh, target genes primarily in the liver uh, with the GalNAc approach. However, you know the holy grail for this whole technology is to really try to drive tropism to tissue beyond liver. Uh, can you just can you just talk about how you think about about that and try to uh, address the limitations of current uh, siRNA?
1: It's a good question, Luca. I would say that taking a step back, uh, you know, we've seen tremendous advances in in fields like gene therapy, gene editing, um, to go after targets that are genetically uh, validated. And as a result, you have a heap of companies out there which are gene therapy companies. What has always struck us as interesting is that when it comes to ASOS, SIRNA, you don't have as many companies, and that strikes us as interesting. What we've been particularly looking for is data that shows you can deliver these formats beyond the liver, where the tropism has been exquisite. In the case of Dyne, data showed that their antibody-conjugated oligonucleotide was able to get the adequate biodistribution in muscle. And that's pretty unique because there are uh, many neuromuscular diseases where biodistribution and uptake uh, and delivery is a challenge, not just with SIRNA or ASOs, but also with gene therapy. And we thought that the DYN approach, which is to use an antibody as a delivery uh, vehicle to get into the, uh, the muscle with uh, conjugated with ASO uh, or the oligo, um, was clever, differentiated, and showed there was a reason to believe they could get the ad- adequate distribution uh, required to get a therapeutic effect You know, in, in, in the preclinical models. So that's what got us excited. On dying is really one of the next frontiers in this space.
0: You mentioned gene therapy a few times. Uh, m- maybe before we uh, we dive into some of some of your investments, we'd we'll love to get your take on uh, some of the macro trends that we're seeing in that space. Uh, you know, we've seen, uh, uh, you know, how manufacturing continues to be a key area of focus. And also we've seen the FDA maybe being directionally more stringent. Is that changing your, your philosophy here in terms of investing in gene therapy?
1: What I would say is that any sort of technology trend follows a pretty predictable cycle. You know, firstly, you know, you know there's the uh, promise of the technology from academia. Uh, then there's the key clinical breakthrough. Then you have industry swarming into the clinic, which is you know what we've seen with uh you know with the vexus and and um, then we as then as this happens you know fundamentally the, the the processes are industrialized and the kinks in the armor become apparent and we're at the stage where the kinks in the armor are becoming apparent from a manufacturing perspective from frankly a clinical data perspective as well. the promise of gene therapy is still there uh, and we're very bullish on the space. It's just that these things take a bit longer, uh, you know, to, to get to prime time. We have two investments, uh, homology medicines and Asclepius uh, Bio. A thesis about the space is that, you know, whilst there is an overhang, given the, uh, the CRL from DA on, on Bio, Biomarine's uh, HEME program, um, the requirement potentially to run a, a longer study uh, to show durability of response. Um, uh, and potentially on the future to run studies against an active or historical standard of care as distinct to a single arm study. Those points are important considerations from a trial design perspective. The other point is also around manufacturing. The reality is that the first generation of programs are expensive to manufacture. The dosing required is high. And with that comes the issue of transaminitis uh, or liver tox, which we've seen with these therapies across the board. What I would say is that you know, now we're understanding the real issues with gene therapy across the board, but we also have the toolkit to figure that out. So you're already seeing the next generation of companies that can address this, and that's where you're seeing deals getting done. For new gene therapy formats, that will be safer, less toxic, and potentially easier to manufacture than the first generation that's where the space is moving to. I think this field is just in its infancy, and that's what excites us.
0: I would love to uh, maybe step back and you know, conclude with some uh, bigger picture questions here. Uh, obviously, it has been a record-breaking year for uh, IPO um, what are your thoughts on companies you know uh, flipping public sooner uh, rather later versus a few years back, and you know maybe more broadly, how are you thinking about exit? I would say
1: that you know the industry has certainly benefited from a very open uh, public market here in the u s that is increasingly receptive to innovation uh, and so preclinical, early stage preclinical. Companies that are focused on changing science, whether it's in gene therapy, oligos, uh, cell therapy, immuno-oncology, we've seen a lot of receptivity you know, around those stories. No question biotech has its ups and downs, and even in the last several years, there's been volatility around a broader macro trends like drug pricing, like politics. But fundamentally, if you look at some of these broad-based biotech indices over the last several years, they've been impressive performers. I would also say that fund inflows into the industry have been increasing, and we have seen the, the maturation of this industry where journalists, investors, you know, have to take, uh, you know, have to take note of, uh, because, you know, some of the broader U.S. indices have a large chunk of them, which is biotech, whether it's a mid-cap industry or uh, a small cap indices. I would say uh, anywhere from 4 to 500 is the number I've heard uh, biotech IPOs since, you know, 2012. So, We expect that that will still continue over the next several years. We do expect that there's going to be volatility, but the window will be open for very good stories uh, where you have the confluence of strong science, strong management, and very strong investors. We're actually a very M&A-driven firm. We do think that pharma M&A is the lifeblood of this industry. Pharma continues to access innovation through M&A. We don't believe that will stop. Increasingly, their early stage pipeline is coming from venture-backed biotech companies. Increasingly, new FDA-approved medicines, and particularly areas like cell therapy, gene therapy, they're coming from venture-backed biotech companies as well. So, you know, that trend will continue. We still think M&A is here to stay, and is frankly um, really the exit avenue that you know we aspire to, we like. And the great thing about an IPO um, is that it allows these companies to ultimately access a lower cost of capital for their pipeline development. That's our interest in getting these companies public.
0: Last question, and I recognize this is a very open-ended question, but when you look at biotech, when you look at the latest breakthroughs that are coming down the pike, what do you think would be the biggest breakthrough in biotech for the next decade?
1: Good question, Luca. I really think, broadly speaking, it's gene editing as a tool to enable a generation of therapies that can potentially cure diseases like sickle cell disease, hemophilia, you know, that's really what excites me the most. The way I would frame it is, uh, whilst, you know, both the tool and the modality of gene editing is exciting, from a clinical perspective, I do think we're in a new era of of curative therapies. We have a suite of technologies that can fundamentally uh, address the root cause of genetic diseases. Um, and uh, and we're going to see some outstanding clinical results
0: through that in the coming decade. Terrific. Uh- that's a great point to end on. Thank you, Arjun, so much for, for your insights today. What else does 2020 have in store for biopharma? We'll keep in track right here on Pathfinders. Thank you all for joining, and we hope you'll stay tuned for future episodes. If there are any areas that we discussed today that you'd like more information, please don't hesitate to contact us directly for more in-depth discussion or visit our website for further insights. Thanks